Psalm 51 is probably one of those psalms that is well known, just like Psalm 23 is. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 51 is all about David's prayer of repentance. So let's uh, just pray, and then we'll look at the text together. Father, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you've been moving amongst us already, speaking to our hearts, Lord, and we pray you continue to do that as we look at your word this morning. Lord, this is your word, and we pray that your word, word would be a, just touch our hearts and convict us this morning, Lord, because your word is sharper than any two double-edged sword, Lord, piercing, Lord, and we pray that your word would pierce our hearts this morning so that we may be changed. Lord, we want to go from this place, having met with you through your word. So would you do that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's a question to begin with. I don't want you to shout out. I want you to just think in your head. How many times have you sinned this past week? <laughs> the next question is, how many times have you repented of those sins? Okay, so how many times have we sinned and how many times have we repented of those sins? Now, repentance is one of those things that you don't hear much about these days. Either out there, you know, the word has kind of gone out of fashion. But even in the church, the word repentance isn't spoken of very much, is it? It's, it's one of those words that you, you don't want to talk about because it's, it's negative. And, you know, when we go to church, we want to have a feel-good message, don't we? You know, we want to feel good about ourselves. We don't want to talk about repentance and sin, you know? Those things have all been dealt with at the cross, which they have, praise God. But we still have the issue of sin in our lives. And therefore, because of that, we still have to keep repenting. One church leader in America who leads a mega church, thousands of people, was asked about his success. Why do you have so many people in your church? And the pastor said, we don't talk about sin in this church. We don't talk about repentance in this church. And that's what attracts the people. People don't want to hear about sin and repentance. They want to hear about good stuff. Which we all do, don't we? We like to hear a happy message, a good feel message. We all like that. But repentance, talking about repentance, will ultimately do us good. It will do us good. And I was thinking about, about this pastor. I was thinking, imagine if he invited a John the Baptist to his church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Can you imagine John the Baptist turning up at that church? And saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or, who told you to flee from the wrath 
to come, you brood of vipers. You know, this isn't the sort of message churches want to hear today, is it? They want to hear a good, feel-good message. But actually, repentance is a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that God has given us to invite us back into fellowship with him. Listen to Romans chapter 2, and it should be on the screen. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing, here it is, that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's the goodness of God that brings us to that place of repentance. And we need to repent when we go astray. But repentance, and there's the second thing, repentance comes with brokenness. God can use brokenness. We don't like broken things, do we? We like things to be whole. You know, when you drop the glass and it breaks, you think, oh. But God can use brokenness. And in our psalm today, and we'll read it in a moment, but verse 17 of the psalm says, the sacrifices, it's on the screen, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. God loves brokenness. And repentance requires brokenness. We can have remorse, we can have regret, and we can be sorry for the things we do wrong. But those things ultimately will not change the way we live. Judas Iscariot was remorseful for what he did to Jesus, but he wasn't repentant. And because he was only remorseful, look what happened to him. It says he went out and hung himself. That's what remorse does. But repentance brings about change. And if we look at the, the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, it means a change of mind. We change our mind about something. And unfortunately, many of the faith preachers who don't like to talk about repentance too much leave it at just a, a change of mind you just need to change your mind about what God thinks about you they would say but the Hebrew word for repentance is much more than that it derives from the verb to return you know like the prodigal son who went out and squandered everything he had returned to the Father. He didn't just have a change of mind, his change of mind turned into action and he returned to the Father. And for those of us who have become Christians, we have returned, haven't we, to the Father because we've repented of our sin. Jesus says in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners 
to repentance. Why didn't he come to call the righteous? Because there aren't any. (laughs) There are none that are righteous. He came to call sinners, and that's every single one of us. And I'm not preaching this message this morning to bring condemnation. I was talking to Clayton at the beginning. You know, I'm the chief of, chief of sinners, just like Paul. So don't think it's, it's me against you guys, because we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners, saved by the grace of God. And we need to repent of our sins, even as Christians. Because the faith preachers, some of them, would say, you don't need to repent because you are now in a right relationship with God. But look what John says in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful. And he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, guess what? We make him a liar and his word is not in us. Psalm 51 is a psalm about David who completely went off the rails. And yet he returns to the Lord in repentance. Let's read it. Psalm 51. Now look at the introduction. It will say in the introduction, to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your love and kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, 
you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. So we know the context because the introduction gives us the context. It's about David and his adultery with Bathsheba. And you can read the whole story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Chapters 11 and 12. But just to give you, thank you, just to give you an outline of what happened. The men had gone out to war against the Ammonites. David stays back at home. What a foolish thing to do. He stays back. He goes up onto the rooftop of his house and he sees a beautiful woman, a married woman, and she's bathing naked. And he lusts over her. He brings her into his home and he sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And if that is not enough, he tries to cover his sin by having her husband come home from the war to sleep with his wife. So it looks like he got her pregnant. And when that didn't work, he conspired to have the husband killed in the battle. So he murders an honest man to protect his affair with his wife. And it says in 1 Samuel eleven twenty-seven, the thing that David had done was pleased the Lord. I should think so. <laughs> it displeased the Lord. Now, in fairness to David, I think it's on the screen, 1 Kings 15, 5 talks about that David did everything right except for the sin against Uriah, and Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. He did everything right except for this. So point one, if you look at your sheets, repentance comes firstly through the conviction of sin. And sometimes that conviction of sin can come through other people. In this case, God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan tells this parable about this guy who did something pretty awful. And David becomes outraged at what this guy did in this parable and says, this guy needs to die. Justice needs to be done. And Nathan says to David, actually, you are the man. You're the one who's done this horrific thing. And you need to do something about it. And in 1 Samuel um, 12, 13, it says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned 
against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. And it was probably at this time that this psalm was penned, this psalm of repentance. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, just to give you an example in the New Testament where Paul, the apostle, also is used by God to bring conviction to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. And he says to the church there, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry, sorrow, sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance, which is what happened here with David. And he says... Point two, repentance leans on God's character. So he says in verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Have mercy upon me, O God, he says. He knew that God was a merciful God. He knew that. And someone who is merciful is somebody who's walking along and they see somebody drowning in the river, probably their worst enemy, drowning in the river, and they throw out a rope to the person to save them and pull them in. That's what mercy is. And that's what God is doing with David. And that's what David is calling out for God to do. Have mercy on me. Rescue me from this terrible state that I am in. According to your loving kindness, he says. It's God's hesed, God's loving, God's covenantal kindness that David is leaning on. According to the multitude of your mercies. It's not just that God is a merciful God, but David knows that his mercies are many. And we'll sing the song at the end. Our sins, they are many, but his mercies are more. Hallelujah. One commentator says, men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins, but here is a comfort. Our God has a multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs of our head, God's mercies are as the stars of heaven. Praise God. He says, blot out my transgressions. And in verse 9, he says, blot out all my iniquities. This idea of blotting, this idea of cancelling, destroying, erasing his sins. 
his transgressions. There's a wonderful scripture in Colossians 2, and it's on the screen. Colossians 2, 13 to 15, he says, And you, and that's us, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out or blotted out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He's washed our sins away. He's taken them out of the way by nailing them to the cross. Hallelujah. Verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's using three different words here. He's using transgressions, iniquities, and sins. And you could bundle them all together and say they all mean the same thing, but there is slight variations in the meaning. Transgression means to willfully trespass. So when you see a sign which says no trespassing, and you go over that, you have transgressed. You've disobeyed what it said. But the word iniquity is more deeply rooted. It means a premeditated choice. To commit iniquity is to continue without repentance. So yes, you've gone over and trespassed, but then you just continue on without repentance. That's iniquity. This is what Micah 2.1 says. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds, and in the morning they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. Isn't that what David did? He had the power to have Uriah murdered. And he did. And the word sin, and the Bible says we've all sinned. We might not have done such a bad thing as David, but we've all sinned. Literally, it's this idea of missing the mark. You know, you keep throwing, trying to hit the, bull, the bullseye, but you never hit it. You miss the mark every single time. And that's every single human being on this planet. It's good news, isn't it? But that's just the way it is. The Bible tells it as it is. We've all sinned and fallen short. Point three, repentance towards God. He says in verse three, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. It's against God. See, all sin is against God ultimately because God says do not commit adultery. And when David commits adultery, he's sinning against God's command. When God says do not murder, David murders. He goes against God's command. It's against God. When, when Joseph was tempted, was he tempted? It doesn't say he was tempted. 
but Potiphar's wife comes to him. And Potiphar's wife wants to get him in bed and get him in trouble. And Joseph says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He he doesn't say, and sin against Potiphar. He says, I'm going to sin against God. And that's what David has done here. And then he says that you, God, may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, he's saying to God, you know, if you judge me and kill me, you're right to do that. You would be blameless to do that. But the scripture back in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, when Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. God is judging rightly. And how outrageous is that, that God could forgive David of this enormous sin of adultery and murder. The Lord has put away your sin. Isn't that amazing? If you told someone in the world these, these things, you know, that there's a guy in the Bible who murdered someone, committed adultery and then murdered, had someone murdered, and God forgave him. They would be outraged, wouldn't they? How could God do that? Because David repented. That's how God could do it. David repented. And we're reading it here in Psalm 51. That's how good God is. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen short. God is ready to forgive. Hallelujah. I think it was Wesley, the vilest offender who truly believes and repents. The vilest offender. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. God will forgive. Point four. Repentance enables us to see things God's way. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, this could open up a lot of theological debate about original sin, about total depravity, etc., And, you know, Calvin, in his five-point tulip, the first one is T, total depravity. He says we are totally depraved, capable of nothing. Okay? So you could say, well, David could argue, well, if that's the case, then why should I repent? Because I'm totally depraved. I'm going to sin anyway because I was sinned from birth or actually sinned in the womb. I'm a sinner, but that's not an opt-out clause because Scripture also tells us, and I always go to the story of Cain, where God says to Cain, and this is well before Calvin, by the way, (laughs) he says in Genesis 4-7, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door and its desire is for you. But listen to what God says. But you should rule over it, over the sin. We have this capability of ruling over sin by the grace of God. We cannot just say, well, I'm a sinner, so I'm going to sin. We can choose. Joshua chose. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will. When we stand before God on judgment day, we can't say, it was all Adam's fault. Sorry. I had no choice. You know, I'm a sinner because of Adam. Now, we will stand there with our own sin. We will stand there with our own sin. We cannot blame others. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the devil. And so forth. We cannot put the blame on others. He says in verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. The hidden part is the heart. The whole issue of sin and repentance is a heart issue. The heart is the seat of our will. Out of the heart flows the issues of life. If we can get our heart right, everything else should fall, fall into place. If we get the internals right, the externals will follow. Man looks at the heart, but the look, sorry, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. You know, we can only put a show on for so long, can't we? We can turn up on a Sunday morning, and I was saying to, this, to a brother last week, you know, very often we're not very transparent as Christians. We turn up for church, and we put on this holy face of, you know, I'm a Christian, and, you know, I've got it all together. Well, congratulations, because I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. You know, I'm a complete mess sometimes. But God desires truth in the inward parts. This idea of truth is sincerity or honesty and faithfulness, integrity. That's what God is looking for within us. And David knew that. David knew that God was looking for truth in the inward parts. Wisdom, he says. You will make me to know wisdom, verse 6b there. And wisdom is wisdom that comes from God, isn't it? It's God's wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God and God will give it. But what does worldly wisdom says? Worldly wisdom says, it's okay to sleep around. It's okay to cheat on your taxes. It's okay to lie. That's what worldly wisdom says. It's all about you. You do what's best for you. But godly wisdom isn't like that. Godly wisdom is 
truth and honesty and integrity. That's what God desires from us. Verse 7, he says, and this is point five on your sheets, repentance enables faith. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge me, he says. And the word there for purge is kapar, and it literally means to de-sin. David wants to be de-sinned. He wants to have his sin purged completely away. Can you feel David's heart here as we're going through the psalm? Here's a man who's repentant. He says, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop is a shrub, a small Mediterranean shrub, and they used it to dip the blood on the doorposts in Exodus so that when the angel of death came over, they would be protected. So it gives us this idea of protection. But it was also a, used for ceremonial cleansing. So they dip the blood. They dip it in the blood and they would sprinkle it on the person who needed purification, like a leper, for example. And so there would be cleansing. So this is symbolic of cleansing and protection. David wants to be cleansed. He wants to be protected. And he says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isaiah 118 says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And we see this time and time again cropping up in Scripture, and it's on the screen. There are three Scriptures here but talking about being washed. And he says in Acts 22, 16, Would you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and some of such were you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And finally, Re- Revelation 7, 14, <clears throat> he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how we can be whiter than snow. When we trust in the blood of Jesus, that cleanses us from all sin and makes us whiter than snow. And he says in verse 8, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. You know, our bones hold us together, don't they? If we, would, if we didn't have bones, and I don't need to be a doctor to know this, that we'd be on the floor in a heap, <laughs> wouldn't we? If we didn't have bones. And that's what David is feeling like. He's like, I'm in a heap on the floor. And the word rejoice there, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice, the word literally means to be free from suffering. To be free from suffering, because he's suffering at this point, and he wants to be free. Verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. We touched on that earlier, about the blotting out, the erasing of our sins. And now he pleads, 
for six things. From six things from verse 10. And you know, forgiveness, let's just be clear. Sometimes we think of forgiveness as just a ticket that we get from God to be free from hell so that we can go to heaven. But it's more than that. It's a new beginning. It's a fresh start by God's grace and his mercy. And his forgiveness empowers us to live differently in the world. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. Because the old things have passed away. Behold, how many? Have become new. Hallelujah. We're awake this morning. If we can't get excited about these scriptures then we're still probably dead in our trespasses. Because this is good news. This is the news that the world needs to hear. God's grace forgives us, but it also transforms us. Did you know that we are saved to reflect who God is? We aren't just saved so that we can go to heaven one day. We're saved to reflect the goodness of God that we become more and more and more like him. So we're going from being cleaned up to asking God to be, for us to be a new creation. So, so David says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. So the word create should take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created out of nothing, the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew verb bara is the word that is used in Genesis 1. And that's what God is, David is asking God to do here. Lord, start from scratch and create a new heart within me. Don't just patch up the old heart. Create in me a new one. Out of nothing. And that's what God has done with us. He's taken out that heart of flesh, that stone, and given us a heart of flesh. It's a new heart. It's a new start. He's forgiven us. But he's also transformed us. Number two, renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word steadfast means to be established, firm, certain, prepared. We all know uh, Ephesians 6 about putting on the full armor of God. And he says in 6.11 that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That you may be able to stand your ground. That's what we need to do as Christians, to be able to stand firm and to stand our ground. Because the days are evil, aren't they? The days are evil. We can look at Psalm 51 and think, yeah, that was David, but that's never going to be me. Mistake. Don't ever say that. We need to stand firm. 1 Corinthians 16, 11 says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. 
third point, do not cast me away from your presence. And the fourth point, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. A bit like saying the same thing there. Um, some commentators are divided on what this actually means. Can we actually have the Holy Spirit as Christians taken away from us? I'll talk to John about that one. But the point is, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. And we can miss his presence working in our lives when we are remaining in sin. Which is why we need to repent. Because there is that danger of losing his presence when we sin and continue in it. Point five, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And this is the crux of the matter, isn't it? The joy of God's salvation in our lives. When we lose that joy of knowing that God has saved us and rescued us from sin. When we lose that joy, our focus changes. Maybe we begin to look at other things, just like David did. When we lose our joy of knowing that God has saved us, maybe we begin to look for other things that will give us happiness and joy and satisfaction. Let me ask a question, and I ask myself the question, is God enough? Is God enough? Because also, let's also remember and be real here, that sin can make us happy. Sin can make us happy. And many think that the way to joy or a good time is by sinning. Many people don't even see it as sinning. It's just what you do. They think that godliness is dull. You know, you Christians are just boring. You don't live life. Well, Jesus told me that he came to give us life and life in all its fullness. I have a life. I don't need the world. I don't know about you guys. I don't need the world to make me happy. I need God in my life. The problem with people who keep sinning and think it makes them happy is that they are actually a slave to sin. They are a slave to it. Romans 6 goes in depth to, to talk about this. Paul, he says in Romans 6, 15, Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thank be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, 
leading to sanctification. Present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, Paul says, not to sin. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, talks about Moses. And he says about Moses, he says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God in Egypt than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There is pleasure in sin, but it's fleeting. It's momentarily, and it leads to death, ultimately, Paul tells us in Romans 6. David enjoyed the fleeting pleasure of sin, but ultimately paid for it. And here he is repenting. And notice he says here, he doesn't say, restore to me. Um, he doesn't say, restore my salvation, but restore the joy of my salvation. For those of people who are, you know, once saved, always saved, rightly say from this verse that David isn't talking about losing our salvation, but the joy of it. The joy of God's salvation. May we all have that again in our lives if we've lost it. And finally, the point six there, he says, and uphold me by your generous spirit. His reliance is upon God's generosity. His generous spirit, his reliance is upon God, not himself. Point six, repentance that leads to change. Change. Verse 13 in the scripture, it says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. He was just asked to have his joy restored. Now he's going to talk about having sinners restored. It's the same word. He wants to be instrumental in restoring sinners to the ways of the Lord. And David is going to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist said that, didn't he? Matthew 3.8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He's told us you've repented. I've told you I've repented. Well, let's see the evidence of that. And it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't matter how much we've messed up. God will forgive us. There's a woman who comes with the oil, the alabaster flask, and she breaks it and she pours it on the feet of Jesus. She anoints his feet. And Jesus says about this woman, he says, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. When you know you are forgiven much, guess what, guys? You're going to tell people. You're going to tell people how much God has forgiven you. If only we were more honest about our sinfulness, I'm sure we'd be far more effective in reaching non-believers to Christ. I've known people to walk in churches, non-Christians, and they walk out again saying, I feel worse than when I came in. Because I'm around these all these so-called holy people. And in many ways, that can be a good thing. But also, we're not being real with the guy who comes in with all his sinfulness. 
We need to tell them, well, yes, I'm a sinner as well, saved by the grace of God. We all need to cling to Jesus, including the guy who comes through the doors with his sin. Because we've all sinned this week, haven't we? We're just cleansed by the blood of Jesus because we ask to be cleansed. We ask to be forgiven. And that's what David is doing here. Verse 14, he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. He hasn't mentioned one word about adultery or murder until now. And it's like this is sandwiched in between him saying, I'm going to tell others, but I'm also going to sing aloud your praise. In verse 15, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. He mentions tongue, lips, and mouth that hadn't confessed to God. We don't know how many weeks it was until David repented. But now he's repenting. Maybe because he didn't repent, maybe he couldn't praise God. Maybe there's some here today. You can't lift up your voice to God. You can't shout forth his praise because there is unconfessed sin in our lives. Verse 16, he says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Now, in David's time, the old sacrifice system was in place. That's what God put in place. But it never really dealt with the deeper issues of the heart. And David, maybe David, you know, in his unrepentant state, was offering sacrifices up to this point, and he says, that's it, I'm not going to give it anymore, because it does nothing. It does nothing. He says, what you need, God, are a broken spirit, verse 17, a broken and a contrite heart, these you will not despise, you will not reject or refuse these things. Look at the, the PowerPoint, Isaiah 57, verse 15, God says this, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. But also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Interesting word, contrite, isn't it? It means to crush, to break, to smash, to hammer or to beat out. And the psalmist says many times, the Lord is near the broken hearted. It says he heals the broken hearted. And sometimes we need to come with our brokenness. God can work with brokenness. I'll say it again, God can work with a broken heart. God can work with brokenness. The woman I just mentioned broke the flask and poured the oil on Jesus' feet. Jesus broke bread, which was a picture of his body, which was broken for us. And he starts with broken hearts. Hopefully when you came to Christ, you realized the brokenness of your yourself, your sin. 
Because if we, if we haven't truly been broken, have we truly come to Christ? Finally, point seven. Repentance enables restoration. He says, verse 18, do good in your good pleasure to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. He mentions Zion and he mentions Jerusalem. In other words, what he has done has affected those around him. Our sin has a rippling effect. And sometimes we say, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Or what they don't know won't hurt them. That's, that's a lie. Our sin hurts other people. Our sin tears down. Our sin allows the enemy a foothold. In 2 Samuel 12, 14, it says, I think it's Nathan, Nathan says, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child also born to you shall surely die. They were the consequences. But it allowed the enemies of God to blaspheme. When we don't walk rightly with God, it allows those outside to blaspheme and say, yeah, Christians, no thank you. I don't want anything to do with it. I've known married couples who've been married for years who break up and the rumors go around the village like a cancer. It's horrible. A horrible witness to see. Our sin does have ramifications and consequences. But now David wants God to build up. He says, build the walls. Walls are strong. They protect. So instead of now tearing down, God wants to, David wants this God to restore and to build. And then finally in verse 19, he says, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. They shall offer bulls on your altar. So when we come here on a Sunday morning and we come and sing some wonderful songs, we hear a message, we have good coffee. Those are all good things. But God wants to deal with our heart first and foremost. And he wants us to be living sacrifices, like Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Let's be real. Let's be real, people. Let's be honest. And as I was just finished preparing for this, I just felt God gave me Jeremiah 18 about the potter and the clay. Some of you may feel like you're a broken vessel that's just messed up. And God is saying, I want to take that vessel and rework something in you. This is what it says in Jeremiah 18.1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel and it seemed good to the potter to do. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, or whatever your name is here today, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Shall we sing that song, Murray? And I just feel, you know, as we sing this song, maybe God is going to minister, if he hasn't already been ministering to you in your heart this morning, that God wants you to come in your brokenness. Maybe you've been hanging on to sin. Maybe there are things in your lives that you cannot let go of. And yet God is saying, this is the day for you to let go of those things in brokenness, to repent of those things, to do a U-turn and to start walking my way again. And we're going to sing this song, our sins, they are many, and they are, but his mercy is more. Hallelujah. Let's just pray while the guys are getting ready. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is merciful. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who works with the broken. Lord, would you work in our hearts right now? Would you touch us, Lord? Would you minister to us, Lord, today? We don't want it just to hear a message, Lord, but we want to be changed. We want to experience you again, Lord. So would you come right now? minister to each one of us. In Jesus' name.